The incoming Biden administration has announced a lot of new plans and aims. But to understand that agenda and the direction it's steering the country toward, it's necessary to zoom out. It's critical to step back from the concrete level of policies and ask a deeper question. What are the philosophic ideas and assumptions underlying the Biden administration's aims? That's the central question we're going to start exploring today. I'm Ilan Jerno. Welcome to the New Ideal Podcast. Joining me today is my colleague, Ankar Gatte. Hey, Ankar. Hi, Ilan. Hey. So I think the way we are going to approach this is we're going to try to analyze and, and sort of bring to the surface the assumptions and ideas underlying the Biden agenda. So I think we're going to sort of lay out a bit of what that is and then unpack sort of what underlies it. But I think before we, we dive in, I just want to sort of clarify what we're doing, what we're not doing. So um, there's a way in which you can look at policy and do what's called policy analysis. And that means, for example, the Biden administration wants to spend 1.3 tri trillion or billion, I forget how much he wants to spend on infrastructure. And one way to do that is to look at the math and say, well, actually it's gonna cost you four times that much. And actually it will take three times as long to do that. So there's, there's that kind of level of policy analysis. That's not what we're trying to do today. We're trying to kind of get at the deeper ideas that are shaping the administration's approach and its aims and sort of understand on the premise that I think we're driving, drawing from Ayn Rand's approach, which is the philosophic ideas are fundamental shapers of culture and, and ideas that then flow into policy. Uh, so I think that's useful as just as a setup for what we want to cover. Um, and we have a lot to say here, I think, and partly it's because the Biden administration has, has put out a lot of things on the table. Um, why, don't, why don't you pick up uh, the topics you want to start with? Let's start with the, I'm going to start with what struck me immediately when you go to Joe Biden's website, and this is obviously pre-election, you could go there and look at, this is what he stands for. These are his proposals and plans that if you elect me, this is what I'm going to implement. And what struck me when you hit, get land on the homepage is the number of plans that there are. So there's at least 40 different plans. Are you seeing them now? Yeah, I can see. Uh, I mean, you start to see some of them. If you keep scrolling, there's plans and plans and plans. There's a lot to scroll here. And it and it's plans for all kinds of different things. You mentioned infrastructure. There's plans for um, union jobs. There's plans for all kinds of different communities. So when you get low on the list, it, the plans for the Catholic community, for the Indian American community, for the Arab American community, for students, for rural America, as I said, for unions, workers, for healthcare, on and on and on. And I think I mean, the reason this struck me is it's just a complete acceptance and buy-in of what Ayn Rand called the mixed economy. So a mixed economy means you're at a level of of government that it's controlling a considerable part of the economy and of people's lives. So it's it has considerable control, if we just think in the US today, of education, of the finance industry, of health care, of retirement, both through Social Security and Medicare um, and education. So it has of, 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 of the energy sector, so when you look at sort of the major aspects of the economy, its government has more and more control. So it's a mixture means considerable government control and still considerable freedom. It's not that government dictates everything that happens in these areas. And it's, there's no challenging of that perspective at all. It's here's my 48 plans or whatever for each of these little areas, or they're not little, but each of these areas that the government controls and here's my proposal basically for more controls in those areas. And one of the things that Ayn Rand had said about the welfare state is that it, it sort of reinforces this collectivist mentality because the more groups there are that are pushing for uh, advantages or, or sort of uh, 
government handouts or, or special treatment, the more other groups feel, well, this is a threat to what I need to do. And so they form a group and, and this sort of multiplies more and more groups. And I think you mentioned the various ones. There's just so many here. Some I'd never actually noticed before as significant politically. And it's not to criticize or to sort of to belittle them. I, I can understand why they've formed the groups in some cases, but it's, it's remarkable. And I think the other uh, sort of aspect of this that leapt out at me as well was that it's a sort of this assumption that we should be looking at ourselves as which which of these is my pet issue wh wh which of these groups do i belong to and if i don't belong to one of these maybe the next election cycle i should form a group and, and do something about it and kind of active activate people on my side uh so this whole idea of you belong to so your primary sort of presence in the, on the political scene is as a member of some group, not an individual, not someone who's concerned with sort of what are the wider principles going on here. Uh, so those are, so that's sort of a different aspect of what you're raising. I think the other thing I want really struck me, you mentioned this, I think, I don't remember if you brought this up yet, but um, there are a lot of plans. And as I was scrolling, it sort of went on and on and on and on and on. And when I, I read this, uh, a couple of days ago when I was preparing for our conversation today, and I read it a, a few months ago before the election because I was, I was trying to understand what it, the Biden positions were. And I had this experience of, I can't retain all of this. I, don't, I actually can't retain it all. There's too much here. And there's this phenomenon, I think, when you, you're overloaded with just concrete data, it's hard to see what do these add up to? What are, what are the wider issues here? Uh, I don't think they're really... I don't think these really add up to principled positions, but there's just, it's overwhelming cognitively to try to figure this out. I think that's deliberate. Um, <laughs> it's deliberate in this sense. If you think of how Biden ran and what he's running sort of on and what he's running against, I think he was running primarily, it's I'm a known quantity I'm stable, respectable. I've been in government and in the Senate and vice president for decades. So you, you know what I'm getting. I've been involved in all kinds of legislation. One of the ones he always trumps is Obamacare. And I'm not Trump. So I'm not a destabilizing influence. It's not going to be chaos every day in the White House. You're not going to have to pay so much attention just to know like what has our government done or said today? And I'm also not Sanders or Warren or AOC. So you can think of them, it's not at the level of a principle, but there's more of a program of Sanders wants universal government socialized health care. AOC wants a Green New Deal. Biden's not that, like there's nothing retainable that he's saying, this is my grand proposal and plan. Here's my 42 very minute concrete plans and that's not retainable and i think that's part of the appeal that he has no grand scheme yeah so he's going to address smaller things it's not as scary perhaps for people who are put off by the other people to sort of to his left yeah i, I could see that um the thing that i so so there's this sort of perspective of individuals as not really salient, but rather these various groups and 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 obscure groups. I have to say, uh, I, I mean, the one that really struck me as, and I have to admit, I don't know a lot about this, but what is the African diaspora, um, or and this one really was worrisome, um, the Catholic community. So, what, and I know he's a Catholic, so maybe there's a sense of which he's sort of giving them a nod, but just it's really astonishing just the way in which this is fragmented as a society. And if you think about what America is, it's out of many one. <laughs> so there should be a sense in which there's a commonality among us rather than we each have our short checklist of things that we need from the government and only these things really matter to us. And the issue you mentioned a bit earlier that Ayn Rand stresses, I think is very important to emphasize so you brought up that it's uh, this kind of mixed economy. The normal way people think of it is lobbying. I think the better way to think of it is it's pressure groups, but and it's groups. So it's groups that are trying to exert political power. 
And people then are attracted to that. It's okay. As an individual, I'm powerless there. I've got this group saying, I want to increase your taxes to pay it for social security. Another group saying of, uh, I want to increase it for education. We want to benefit the Catholics. We want to benefit Asian Americans. And as an individual, you feel increasingly powerless when there's all these groups saying, well, we're going to do this. We're going to take your money to do that. So you're pushed into a group for, for, for the best reason as a kind of defense. It's strength in numbers in this kind of environment. And so it's, okay, well, I guess I've got to join groups to push my interest. And then you start to lose the ability even to distinguish between, now, am I doing stuff just defensive that all these people are trying to take my money and so on to spend on their causes? I'm trying to resist that. And am I trying now to take advantage of other people? Well, we've got causes that we like, and how about we get money and power to implement those? And it's the, I mean, people talk today about our political environment is everybody's at loggerheads. And Ayn Rand's view is that if you have a mixed economy, if you think it's legitimate for government to control all of this, this is the inevitable result that people will be at each other's throats. The, I mean, that sort of opens up the what I think is a, a sort of characteristic or distinguishing aspect of this whole agenda, which is the economic side of things uh, and what um, the Biden administration is talking about. And here, sort of the, the connecting point for me is that there's one sort of wider group that Biden thinks is, there needs to be a lot more emphasis, which is workers, and, and particularly a, a subset of workers, those who have union jobs, and, and there's a whole perspective on what it is to have a good, worthwhile job, and a big part of it is having a union. But it, let's turn to the, the economic plans, because I think this is a big, in terms of what, how, if some of this goes through, this is going to have a lot of influence in terms of what the society can look like and the changes in the law. Um, and when I was reading through the plan, what struck me is that there were echoes here of what Trump had campaigned on, which is buy America and made in America and America as an economic uh, concern. So this, this focus on, on it has to be made here. We wanted the jobs that were offshore coming back. We want, you know, Trump wasn't as much about the unions, but um, this idea of in making America's econ economy so the focal, the focal point, but in, in, in a concrete way, not that we should only produce the things that we're good at producing or that are economically worthwhile producing, but that there's some inherent benefit in it being American made and made by union workers. Yeah, I, I, that I found the same in reading a number of the plans that it was for sure there's echoes of Trump's by American, we've got to bring back American jobs, trying to appeal to that voter. And the twist, as you say, is, yeah, buy when it's buy from American companies when they have unions. Um, and that too elevates and protects the worker. And again, I think of this as Joe Biden as a throwback. Like we, oh, we used to have unions, much more union membership. They were much more powerful in the 60s, 70s, and into the 80s. That's when I was around. That's what I'm going to help bring back, resurrect. And nobody can say, like, this is some new crazy scheme. We had it for decades. And from his perspective, it worked. I mean, from my perspective, I think it was a disaster. And if you think just of one heavily unionized industry, the auto industry in America, I think part, a significant part of its slow strangulation and thinking of when Biden. 70s, 80s, it's uh, American car companies are being displaced competitively by Japanese car companies. That was a whole big thing in the 70s and 80s. And it was, I think they just became so bloated, so inefficient American car companies that the Japanese displaced them. And it's only with sort of the movement of auto production more to the south of the US where unions have less power and less political power that you see some revival of that industry. So he thinks of this as a, I mean, obviously as a, he thinks of it a beneficial uh, focus. I think it will be to the extent that he's able to resurrect the political power of unions, it will be disastrous for America. 
Yeah, and the other echo that I picked up on, and I think it's a, it's a faint echo in the sense that it's not presented in, in its sort of straight ideological sense, but it's labor versus capital. The sort of thing we hear from sort of Marx hundreds of years, you know, many years ago. And, but here it's now corporate power versus the workers and workers need unions because the corporations are exploiting them and, and abusing them. And, and, and there's also the concrete ways in which this comes out that they're shortchanging them on overtime and they're not paying, not giving them the right classification under the law so that they don't even get overtime. So, and, and not to defend people who are, who are cheating their employees. I mean, if that's happening, then that's a problem and there should be remedies for that. But the, the whole perspective is, that's the norm. The norm is a whole bunch of these employers are just looking for ways to shortchange the people that they work for, that they, that, they, that they employ. And the government has to step in and rectify what is an inherently conflicted relationship. And I mean, to me, that that's, it's really, I don't think it's true to the fact. And I think it's also encouraging this perspective that, well, we need to gang up as a union. We need to bring in, because so, unions have, so they're not like, I mean, the one thing that I know about unions that is um, problematic, one of the things is they have a, a power to coerce some of their employees into certain behaviors. And he, so the Biden plan is to strengthen those powers. So you should be able to collect dues from employees who, whether they want to be in the union or not, whether they uh, uh, want to take part in, in strike actions. So to me, this is a, a, I guess you could put it under the heading that you raised earlier, which is it's another kind of throwback. Like this is the way the economy has been run for hundreds of years. We're going to step in as the government and, and sort of sort this out. Yes. I noticed too, in a number of plans, that the vilification of corporate America in different ways is, is a running theme through the plans. And you get language about um, that, and it's corporations and then wealthy billionaires and so on. you get language um, often about we're going to make them pay their fair share and there's never any discussion of on by what principles do you determine fair share like if if the tax rate is 30 percent is that fair if it's 50 percent is that fair if it's 70 percent is that fair and if you think at the individual level of a, of a billionaire, of what they pay in taxes, even if their tax rate is lower than mine, and this is something like Warren Buffett says, my tax rate is lower than my secretary's. But if you ask, yeah, but what's the total amount of tax that you pay? It's gonna be way higher than a secretary. And if you really think of this as representative government, do billionaires get like a hundred times or a thousand times the government services that we get? Like when, so when you ask fair share and it's we're individuals supposed to be equally represented by our government, why do wealthy people have to pay a thousand times more in taxes? There's no discussion of this. It's just taken as obvious that whatever level of taxes and so is seized from them, it's not fair. It should be more. And that is, I mean, obviously a recipe for pushing in that direction of increasing it. And it's again, this, this kind of pressure group, group warfare that it's look at these people, they're not paying their fair share, they're screwing you and we should gang up on them to get them. And it, it's so destructive. So I was thinking that how much of this do you think is a um, a borrowing or a um, sort of a nod to the contingent on the political scene that I've been campaigning for years about, you know, the slogan is abolish billionaires or cancel billionaires. And, you know, we've heard people like AOC say, nobody earns a billion dollars. You take a billion dollars, you steal a billion dollars. And, and I, I don't know if there's a direct line connecting them, but I would not be surprised if part of what we're seeing in this plan is, for the people who who hear that and that find, find that resonate, then okay, this administration is going to make a nod to push it, putting pressure on the billionaires and the super wealthy people, the corporate um, sort of the people who are reaping the benefits of that kind of environment. Yeah, I read it as I mean, when you when you sort of survey the plans, it's I'm moving in the direction 
of a Warren Sanders and AOC of what they're pushing, but I want to move more slowly. That that's I think if you want a nutshell of the direction that these plans point in, there there and I think for the Democratic Party, it's those kind of people who are setting the longer term agenda, and then it's either are we going to elect them to enact it as quickly as possible, or are we going to have candidates who are going to go in that direction but more slowly? Um, one of the things that he brings up in various places is we've talked a bit about union jobs and uh, he calls it robust jobs ag agenda. Um, and the idea is that, so that's one element of it, but the other element is government has to, to pour money into the economy, otherwise nothing will happen. Um, so we need, we need to spend on infrastructure, on roads, on transit, and yeah, the roads are not great. And there are all kinds of things you can say about the bridges and things like that, but that doesn't strike me as a number one priority at all um, and not even plausible. Uh, and even if you assume that this is a role for government to, to be have here, and the, the sort of missing from this picture is where have so much, where has so much of the wealth actually come from in the last half century? And it's, it's from private investment and innovation. And if you think about the sort of the, the most valuable companies on the planet right now, Apple, and you think about Google and, and Facebook and so on, there's just made out of small numbers of people creating value online and through technology and innovation. That is just incredible amount of wealth that's, that's generated by private investment, private individuals, people with ideas, bringing them to life. And that there's no reality to that here. It's sort of like we need the government to come in and save us so that people have jobs and, and, and food on the table. And there's just such a mismatch in terms of what is going on in the economy versus how this is sort of the story that you get from these plans. Yeah, that struck me too in reading again through a number of plans to try to get some of the common themes that private corporations don't invest. They hoard the money or somehow pour it into the pockets of shareholders and the shareholders don't invest the money. It's government that invests, not private enterprise or private corporations. And it's exactly the reverse. It's private corporations that pour money into research, into investment, into growing and getting better. And what government does is take some of their money and spend it which is not investment because they're not making a profit. They can't figure out if it, what we're really doing is worth doing. They can do all kinds of infrastructure projects and so on. And as you say, some are needed. I mean, the condition of roads and bridges and so on. If the government owned, the government has to maintain these. So there's some of this is needed, but the idea that this is what investment looks like, and this is how you will pursue profits that it, you need the government to do it. That is, um, wrong and in the end i think a crazy perspective and the other thing that really struck me is in, in terms of thinking about the philosophical premises at work and often not named but obviously they're at work it's that the government owns everything that it so and there's this kind of language which it's not only biden in his campaign that uses that it's giveaways to corporations and to individuals earning money when we reduce their taxes. So it's like the money's ours. And if we reduce your tax rate from 30 to 25%, this is a giveaway to you, not we're taking less of your money. It's we're giving it away to you as though we're the rightful, morally, the rightful owner of it. And that too is un-American, but it's all over the plan, this kind of attitude that, yeah, when we reduce taxes, lower spending, that's a giveaway to you guys, which is not right at all. I mean, connected to that, this sort of perspective that, you know, the government owns the wealth and it's sort of deciding how much to give you back. And, and uh, the, the thing that is sort of flows out of this is sort of the philosophical premise here um, connected to employment conditions because a big part of the plans you see is there's going to be the this uh, plan i forget what it's called it's called the uh the protecting the right to organize 
pushing mm -hmm. that legislation in. And then if you think about connecting that to he, uh, the plans call for a national minimum wage of $15, which is going to be a big hike in for many places. The idea there is you and your, the employer are not really competent to decide the terms of the, of the relationship. You, you're either going to be exploited by the wily corporate interests, uh, or it's just it's a given that um, whatever terms you decide are, are, are fine, yeah, that's not good enough. You need to be paid $15 an hour. Even if your labor, I mean, there's all there's a whole discussion we can have about what's wrong with the minimum wage, but even if your labor isn't worth $15 an hour to somebody, um, so that actually uh, hinders you. But the, the thing that, um, the, sort of the manifestation of this that comes out is the attempt to, I mean, it's, it's not put in these terms, but I think that's really the goal. It's this idea of how employees are classified. So there's this, this whole layers and layers of employment law about how you can, how you have to treat certain kinds of employees and what's full-time, what's part-time, what's a contractor. And I think that the, the target, the unnamed target, but the obvious one is the whole gig economy, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, all the, all these um, sort of app-based companies where the employees, they're not employees, they're just people who turn on the app, they make an agreement with Uber or DoorDash, and they just have these gigs or the, you know, the deliveries or rides that they do. And having benefited from taking a lot of Uber rides, which I, I much prefer to taxis and, and all the delivery services now that you can get for food, particularly in the pandemic, it, it's, it's just a, astonishing that a, anyone would have as a goal to destroy that, which is, I think is what this would mean because we saw this in California. There was a, a proposal um, to prevent to. I mean, there, there was a law passed to reclassify uh, Uber drivers as uh, I think they couldn't be they couldn't stay in the classification that they were. They were told they have to be employees, and then all sorts of things happen and triggers that, which makes the whole business model in, ineffectual. And I think this is part of what is uh, part of the goal in the plans here about controls or how you classify employees. Now, just to think, just to zoom out a bit, this is such a minute kind of issue in labor law, which it's not even clear that, and I don't think the government has a place to define these sorts of things in the first place, but it's now stepping in to say, well, whatever the rules are, we wanna make sure that in effect, nobody can become an Uber driver and be a, a independent contract and make their own hours. They have to be classified under these other sort of pigeonholed uh, categories. And to me, the underlying issue is, it's really demeaning to the, both the people who want to work as Uber drivers or delivery people and to the companies. Like, why can't they just decide? And if it's not good terms, they don't have a deal. Um, and that's the way I think it ought to be. But this is sort of very heavy handed and pa I mean, really patronizing to the, to the both sides of this equation. One of the sad things in reading through these plans that I found is that they're supposedly looking out for the downtrodden, the weak, and so and lifting them up. But as you say, these, if you take the emphasis on unions, on a minimum wage, and on reclassifying these contractors into full employees, and you have to pay them benefits and so on, who is this going to hurt? It's going to hurt the ambitious poor people. The, so unions are geared against the person who doesn't have credentials, but is competent. I mean, it's a kind of egalitarian um, mindset in a union that it elevates the people who don't work hard and penalizes the people who do. The same with minimum wage. If you're low skilled, but ambitious, you'll take a job at $7 an hour and on the and partly on the premise that, look, in a year or two, as I grow and learn things and the company sees, look, I have a lot of potential. I'm going to make more and more and more. Um, but if it if it you can't get a job at seven dollars an hour, they have to pay you fifteen, and to them it's not worth it. And so they automate more and so on. That again, you victimize the ambitious poor. And the same, I mean, I often ask the Uber and Lyft drivers about like how do they find this job? Is it is it worthwhile? And I would say nine out of ten say it is. It's sometimes it's a second job or they're in between jobs and it's a way of, of making ends meet. They love the flexibility of it. And the idea again of going in and saying, okay, yeah, you find this beneficial, but we're gonna outlaw it. It's 
um, the people you're targeting and harming are ambitious, poor people. So let's talk about something else, which I, I mean, I think is worth uh, mentioning. But before we get to that, I should I, I want to mention to everyone listening, wherever you are on YouTube or on Zoom or on Facebook, if you'd like to post a question, we're welcome in that. Uh, we're going to take questions, give priority to the ones on YouTube, uh, uh, Super Chat. And then if you're also on Zoom, you're welcome to send us your questions as well. We'll make some time uh, near the end for that. Um, I mean, is there anything that you think if it were actually put into place would be good among all these things, these proposals? I mean, it, it's a hard, this is like a big mound of hay. And is there anything in here, is there one straw that you would pick out? I mean, one thing on the, there was a couple of things. So one, there was some talk, though not much of a proposal of, um, addressing the intellectual property theft that goes on from China and other nations. And I think that is a real issue and it is a proper issue for the federal government to be concerned with. Um, and I think there's some positive steps have happened under the Trump administration in regard to this. And there's a little bit in, in the, these 40 plus proposals of, yeah, this is an important area that we need to address. Another was um, immigration, that there, it might be that you'll move in a little bit better direction in regard to immigration. Those were, there were a few others, but those were two areas that maybe something a little good will happen. So, yeah, I, I, I hadn't, I haven't sort of delved deeply enough on the immigration one. I didn't get to that. I was reading uh -huh. the other ones, but I, I, I was looking forward to see what he has to say in terms of that. Um, and I have, and, but having sort of talked about a few things that might be good if they're enacted, uh, I, whenever I hear people talk about, we need a constitutional amendment for fill in the blank, the hair on the back of my neck stands up and I yeah. freak out because I think it, anything having to do with changes to the constitution in today's context where we have such intellectual chaos and so little practically no understanding of what the real sort of original aims of the constitution were the idea of a government to protect individual rights and the whole concept of rights is so it's both misunderstood through inflation of all kinds of bogus rights and then when you talk about the actual rights that you would want protected individual freedom and property and intellectual freedom in the sense of free speech and so on those are not all protected so so Anyone coming toward the constitution with a pen in hand, ready to edit it, um, I, I freak out. And so the thing that I saw in one of these plans is there's gonna be a push or a plan to push in a constitutional amendment for in effect, this idea of getting money out of politics and it's sort of campaign finance reform. And then there's aspects of it, which would involve um, government transparency. But the, the real crux of it is preventing particularly corporations from being able to use uh, money to either uh, advocate for certain ideas or to to lobby government and this is a difficult issue i think for a lot of people to kind of untangle what's going on here what because i think there's a sense in which yeah there, it's a problem if you have money you can have influence over politicians and we all worry about lobbying and there's this sort of open secret that a lot of politicians just have a price and you have to know what the price is. Uh, but I think there's a, there's a real concern about free speech here, which is given where we are in, in sort of the mixed economy context you described earlier, it, it's, it's a good thing if you're able to, to voice your views and counteract things that you think are wrong. Um, and sort of push against legislation that undermines freedom. Um, I was wanted to get your perspective on this idea of this whole, I don't, even, I don't actually think there's gonna be a constitutional amendment, but just even the push toward it and sort of the reactivating this area of campaign finance reform is worrisome. Yes, that, this is one of the things that I, in the plans that I found the scariest partly because it's not so much, so both the pushing for socialized so-called universal healthcare and for major environmental controls, 
this is part of, I think, the way people rightly think of the Democratic Party right now. And again, Sanders and AOC are the kind of types pushing this, but pushing for, and it's more than just campaign finance restrictions. So I think it's, it's the idea that um, Citizens United, we really disagree with the Supreme Court decision and we've got to try to get controls back in that this has, uh, this decision has gutted. There, that is with, I think, associated with the Democratic Party. But the idea of, so the constitutional amendment is for public financing of elections and of candidates. And if you really take that seriously, to me, that's the death of representative government. Representative government means I can support and including financially support, but I can support with my time, with my voice, with my arguments, the candidates that I think represent me. And if I, if I think like this issue is really important and we're moving in a really bad direction, I can pay a lot, I mean, put a lot of my resources into it. I can quit my job and join the campaign full time. I can put all my charitable contributions for the year into the, this candidate or on this issue because I think it's really important. And for government to come in and say, no, you can't, we decide where money is gonna go to which candidates, how, how much, it gets control over the whole electoral process. And that is the loss of your freedom. Your freedom is gone. Your freedom of speech is gone, but your freedom to get representative government, that is to get your representatives into government to the best you can, that is gone. And that is, that, that, that this could be proposed and at the level of a constitutional amendment, as you said, I agree with this, that in a certain way, it's better they try to do it through a constitutional amendment because it's so hard to do that they will almost for sure fail. But if you think of what's being proposed, they may well resort to, and there was some hint of this of executive orders and by the, because they know a constitutional amendment would be difficult. So other ways that we can try to implement this idea. And that idea is, enormously anti-freedom and anti the American system of government. Do you think it's right to think of that as a, as a, maybe not just a step, but a leap toward the kind of model that you see in some authoritarian regimes where you can have opposition parties, and I put that in air quotes, but they have to be approved by the government and they can only run within certain constraints and even they might even be publicly financed. And so, you know, to people who believe in this perspective, that might seem like a good thing, but all that means is, here's the one dollar you get and then the the, the the entrenched party gets to do whatever it wants and, and the rules apply differently but I, I mean to me that's that's what came to mind is yeah if that's the that's sort of the end game that you're you're heading towards if you start down this road yes i i do think it starts will start to resemble something like that and if you think of a mixed economy part of what ayn rand argued and i think correctly is that a mixed economy is unstable. So because it's this constant clashing and warfare and unless its premises are checked and you try to institute very different, different premises, the, it, the movement is towards more and more authoritarianism because government is getting more and more power and it's going to use that power. And if you think if we were to move in the direction of more freedom, less controls, that's going to come from outside the political establishment. It's going to be people who aren't vested in the mixed economy, whose whole livelihood now is not dependent on lobbying and getting controls and so on. And if government controls the political process, it will more and more exclude those people from even being able to enter the process, let alone get elected and win. And that's a recipe for cementing in the anti-freedom aspects of the mixed economy. And it, it, it really would be a disaster if that were. I mean, one thing that strikes me about this idea of public financing, the, the sort of another dimension of it that's really worrisome is that it, I mean, it's a direct violation of your intellectual freedom and free speech, because it means that as a taxpayer, maybe you can't trace the exact no, this dollar came from you and went to this candidate, but in effect, you're putting money in this pot that ends up supporting candidates or organizations or, or people running for office that 
you're in effect would never support them if you were free to do that. Uh, and it's sort of, it's coercing people into creating this environment where it's not who actually earns your uh, support through what they stand for. It's just, they qualify through whatever rules are set up and then your tax money sort of ends up funding them, which to me, that's abhorrent. Why would I want to do that? And we already have that kind of problem in the public schools where, you know, there's sort of intellectual content that's funded by people, regardless of whether they agree with it or not. Yeah, that's an important point because it's a sort of double injustice. If you think of the public schools, it's I've got to pay to support schools that I don't like and don't want to send my children to. And I no longer have money then to send them to a private school that I would want. And public funding of elections is even worse because it's I have to fund people and candidates that I don't like. And I'm prohibited from funding the candidates that I like. For schooling, at least private schools aren't yet outlawed. It's difficult to send if you're paying so much in taxes to the public education system. But public election funding means even if you still have money that you would want to spend on candidates that you support, you will be prohibited from doing so. So we're, we're close to time. And um, thanks to one of our contributors who uh, sent us a, a note in the Super Chat. We appreciate your support. Um, one final thought I wanted to raise in connection with that. So we've been talking about intellectual freedom and free speech and how sort of that interplays with uh, sort of campaigns and, and government's role. Um, I read through the sections on education or most of them that I could get through because I part of it is it's repetitive. And so you're not sure if there's new material in, in here. Mm -hmm. And so I, I got through most of it, I think maybe all of it. And one of the things that is not a surprise here is I think something that Biden has talked about before, which is expanding um, pre-K or, or sort of childcare before kindergarten uh, across the country. And I, it's not clear how that would actually play out, whether it, it could be done federally or has to be done through the states. I think he's pushing to do it through the states. And then there's all sorts of programs for teachers and, and the educational system. We need to pour more money into it. Um, we should do a whole other podcast about the education system today uh, and, and sort of a critique of that. But mm -hmm. the thing that struck me is there there's so many problems with education already that expanding the government's monopoly into pre-K is another kind of step towards cementing the existing problems and expanding them. So you're getting children. I actually believe that it's really important for children to get pre-K education and that you can start early and, and to really help them. But I would not want the government in contact with children any sooner than it already is. In fact, I would I want government's role to be diminished uh, mm -hmm. as much as possible. So I, that actually worries me uh, because it's presented as well, it's gonna liberate mothers so they can go back to the, to the workplace. And, and there is a, an issue there for how you manage when you have uh, young children and how to fit that in together with a career. But I think it really is, I wouldn't say it's a Trojan horse because we know what's, what's coming with government's role in education, but it, it really is going to expand government's ability to influence people's minds from a, a younger age, um, sort of socialize them and then sort of steer that, which I found really troublesome. Yeah. Every major area you look at, it's the plans amount to pointing out real or alleged problems, and there's certainly real problems in education, and saying the solution is more government control and more government power. And I'm not going to make a crusade of it, like I've got some grand plan, but I'm going to build on the controls. It is like Obamacare, we're gonna get Obamacare plus more controls. Education, keep all the controls we have, and yeah, get through now below kindergarten, have government involved more and more there. And it, that's the common denominator is what we need to address our problems is for government to have more power and more control over our lives and the various aspects of our economy. Um, before we wrap up uh, today's uh, show, let's bring in this question. Um, let me read it out. So in regard to campaign finance, aren't there or a lot of conflicts when, for example, uh, people on welfare or members of teachers unions vote? 
Um, I'm not sure if there's a if there's direct conflict, but if it's if the idea is that because they have a vested interest in, for example, if you're a teacher and you, you belong to a union, you would want to see the unions protected and, and you would want to see more funding for schools. In that sense, I could see a, a kind of in, uh, um, you would I could see people saying, well, you're voting in a direction to reinforce your existing position. And I think that happens all the time, and that's sort of the dynamic where. I think a big part of the, the plans we've been looking at have all sorts of giveaways and, and prizes for groups like teachers unions and others. Um, I don't know that, it, I mean, it's a conflict in the sense that it's, it's conflicted with the idea of a free society, um, but I'm not sure I, I fully got the gist of the question. Do you, how do you interpret it? Yeah, I'm not positive I'm getting it either, but I can imagine various things prompting the question. So one, into what you just last said and a point you made earlier about um, unions and being forced to join the union. Uh, a number of people in the YouTube chat have brought up teachers unions and it's true. So it's when the Biden plans are emphasizing unions, it's not just private sector unions, it's emphasizing strengthening government and federal unions as well. And those unions are often, and certainly the teachers' unions, very political. So when you're forced to join and pay dues, you're forced to support political causes and candidates that you may well disagree with, oppose, and would never support on your own. So that is, it's not campaign finance that is the issue, but there are issues about political representation there. I think probably another aspect that might be generating the question or is generating the question is this issue of all these government employees or beneficiaries of government programs as in effect, you bought their vote and they're gonna keep supporting these things. And that is, I think there is a element of truth to that, but it exists throughout the mixed economy. So whoever's getting some kind of favors power unfair advantage from the current structure of controls and they sometimes might be wrong that it's beneficial for me but they think that they you can think of them as having their vote has been bought i don't think there's any solution for it other than education when people get to the level of thinking in principle this is wrong Whatever advantages I seem to be getting from um, the, the controls, they're elevating teacher pay through unions or what have you, it's looked from a wider and sort of nationwide perspective, it's destructive. That we, we, including me, would be way better off if free. And so even though they think they bought my vote, they have, that's an educational campaign that you need. You know, that reminds me of Ayn Rand's essay on the conflicts of men's interests, and she puts that in, in quotes. Uh, one of the things I take from that is she, her analysis of what it means to form and to define one's self-interest. What, what counts as that and, and what range of things mm -hmm. fall under that? And it, it really um, connects with this issue as you're describing in the mixed economy, because I think the mixed economy creates a pressure against forming a principled long-range view or rational conception of one's interest because it's there are a lot of short-term pressures and, and it seems like oh yeah if only our you know the nurses union can get this extra thing where we get whatever pay raise they can get or that's in our interest and yet as you're saying if you think more broadly at a wider perspective nobody really benefits when the system is is operating on this corrupt idea of distributing wealth and, and sort of uh, influence peddling and, and handing out different kinds of privileges, which are essentially what they are, that are um, at the expense of some other group in many cases, if not always. So, I, I mean, I think it's a really helpful piece to, to read from the perspective of um, even if you're getting something and it seems like your paycheck is bigger or you have a, some new advantages that you didn't have before and you think you're, you're better up, if you actually conceive of your interest in, in a wider rational context, the, the whole system is, is problematic and it, no, nobody benefits when the system 
continues in the same direction that it's continuing in some, and it's sort of layers upon layers, uh, new kind of controls and new benefits. Um, and this is, I mean, this, will, this is a great opening for the topic we're gonna to talk about uh, tomorrow. So this topic, I think deserves a bit more exploration. And uh, tomorrow's uh, live stream, Ankar will be back and uh, in my place will be Ben Baer and the topic will be healthcare and looking at the, specifically the plans and the agenda of the, the Biden administration with respect to healthcare. Because I think one of the issues with healthcare is a lot of people think of it as well, you know, I have this plan for my employer and the government makes it, it requires it to have these kinds of protections. So isn't that a good thing? Um, and, you know, now I'm covered for maternity leave and I wasn't before and, and so on. And the, I think the issue there again is if you're conceiving of your interest in a sort of wider perspective as a matter of principle, it's not really in your interest. Nobody really benefits from all, all these um, machinations that arise from the mixed economy. But with, that's just a, a preview of, of sort of the um, reminder that tomorrow the topic will be the healthcare agenda. Um, any final thoughts before we wrap up? Um, do you want to mention the, the, the third day? Because And uh, let me just say a little bit of the reason why. So, so there's 40 plus plans in, in the Biden things, but I think rightly people think two of the areas that is most likely that further controls will be passed is one is healthcare. And this promise I'm going to strengthen Obamacare and add to it. That's one of the things that Biden really ran on to the extent he was running on a positive program. And the other I think is environmental. I'm not gonna do a green new deal, but I'm gonna do significant things and we need to put the energy sector in check and radically change it. So on the on Wednesday, uh, who will it'll be Keith and Keith and Ben, I believe. And they'll be talking about the environmental energy implications of what Biden is proposing and sort of the ideas behind it. Yeah. So we hope you'll join us again uh, tomorrow when uh, Ankar and Ben will be back to talk about healthcare. And on Wednesday, same place. Same time, uh, Keith Lockage and Ben Baer will be talking about energy and the environment, uh, and uh, analyzing the philosophic ideas and assumptions behind those uh, aims of the Biden administration. So I think we're at time, and uh, thanks everyone for watching. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Alan. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.